Just can ask you to turn again in your Bibles to Judges, it's Judges chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading from verse 1. So it's Judges chapter 8 and beginning from verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call on us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest west of Abizah? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the name of the 77th officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the men at the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon answered, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said to him, 
Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's necks. Let's come and pray. Father, we pray that you will give us understanding of this word and clarity about how we can apply this to our lives and how we can, in turn, live out the truths that are there at the heart of it. We ask that you'll lead us, open your word by your Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. And if I were to be asked to, to choose a phrase to sum up this morning's sermon, what I'm going to try and, and bring to you today from God and from his word, then I think it would have to be some kind of sporting phrase, something like, you know, along the lines of the importance of keeping your eye on the ball or of, of going for the goal. The basic idea being of our need to know where we're going and what we should be doing and keep our eye on that. If in the end, ultimately, we're ever going to get anywhere. Refusing to be distracted or diverted from this. Now, this is a truth that I believe applies to life in general, right across the board. You know, the old saying that if you don't aim at anything, then don't be surprised if you don't hit anything. You know, we need to be focused. However, I think it does have to be said that this is something that often we don't seem to have grasped within the church in the, the wider and the widest sense, and with this being so right down to the level of the individual Christian. So often we, we don't really know where we're going, or we lose sight of where we're going. We lose sight of what we should be doing. And so our, our church life, our Christian life, in our life, we kind of wander around in a confused and, and aimless way. And we are so easily then distracted here, there, everywhere. In fact, many years ago when I was writing an essay on, on church growth, on the, the different factors that, that were being identified then that enable churches to grow, I came across a, an interesting phrase while looking at the importance of evaluating what we do, of using things like statistics, etc., to measure our effectiveness. And, and this is a phrase, this is the way that it was put, that churches more often than not move around in a fog. You see, we're not sure what we're doing. We're not sure where we're going or where we're supposed to be going. And certainly we're not sure a lot of times whether or not what we're doing is working. But you see, it's what we've always done. You know that great saying, we've always done it this way. So no matter what, we are going to keep on doing it. And perhaps secretly. And it's maybe even a secret that we hide from ourselves. It's sort of deep in our subconscious. Perhaps we're afraid to really look at things. We're afraid because we're afraid of change. We're afraid of the cost. We're afraid of the upset of change. We're afraid maybe of what we see as the inferred judgment of change on what we've done in the past. Well, I want to ask you, is this really the way that we should organize our church life? Should we just charge on or maybe just dawdle on without thinking in a state of confusion? Should we allow ourselves to be governed by fear, particularly where so much 
of this fear, fear of judgment, fear of criticism, may well, at least in my view, be groundless. For to say that something needs to change now doesn't mean that it wasn't right for another generation. No, what it means is that it has to be adapted perhaps or even totally replaced for the needs of this generation. A great example though of a a man who really knew where he was going, who knew what the Christian life and what church life was supposed to be all about and who did everything in his power to see it come into being was the Apostle Paul. I mean, listen to Paul's famous words in Philippians 3. Words that he wrote when he was in prison, in chains, with much more of his, of his life and ministry behind him than was to come. But listen to what he says, in chains. Verse 12. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul didn't allow what was going on around him to divert him, to distract him from the main purpose for which he believed God had called him. I believe we find Precisely the same quality is present here in the person of Gideon here in Judges chapter 8. Because as we explored together last week, in God's strength, by God's power, he's just won a mighty, a miraculous victory. He's just defeated a Midianite army of 135,000 with a tiny band of 300 Israelites. 300 Israelites, whose only resource was that they were men of faith, men who were available and committed to God. But that was all they needed. And it's all we need too. Here though, after the rout, he's pursuing them, he's, he's mopping up the remnant of the Midianite army, though I have to tell you, it is still a sizable remnant that outnumbers Gideon's force even now by around 50 to 1. But what we find now, though, is one of the most commonly repeated processes in the spiritual life. And that is that when Gideon is on a high, when he's rejoicing in the victory that's been given to him by the Lord, with a work seemingly much more manageable, much more achievable, set before him, and he's focused on that, well then, at that point, the devil steps in. And note... Note, here working through God's people, seeks to conspire to, if not, send Gideon flat on his face, at least in some way tie him up in knots and make him ineffective. He seeks to distract Gideon from the task in hand. He seeks to prevent him from fulfilling the goal set for him by the Lord. And the way he goes about this is by placing in Gideon's path Two of the commonest problems that as God's people we will have to face. Two of the things that if we are really seeking to live for God as a church and as individuals will continually come our way and that we have to overcome, we have to learn how to overcome if we're going to fulfill God's will and purpose. So 
if we're going to really go for it, we need to learn how to deal with these things. And we find no better example of how to do that than here in Gideon. So let's look first then at how he deals, number one, with the problem of jealousy. That's the first one. And, and this jealousy comes from the Ephraimites, who claim that they've been left out of the battle, that they've been robbed of their share of the glory. It says there, first one, now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. Now, in order to understand this, what's going on here, there may be one or two things that first we, we need to get a hold of. Beginning with the fact that Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, was at this time, far and away, the most important and influential of all the Israelite tribes. Now, there were a number of reasons for this, one being the, their geographical location. Quite simply, the part of the promised land that under God had been allotted to them. For you see, this bit of land, this lay right in the heart of the territory that was possessed by Israel. And so when there were attacks by their enemies, then Ephraim, buffered by the other tribes of Israel around them, they suffered far less than any other tribe. And this then gave them a better chance to, to consolidate their territory, a better chance to grow in wealth, and therefore because of that also to grow in influence and power. And then a, another benefit they had was their ancestry, and particularly the fact that Joshua, the great Joshua, that he'd been an Ephraimite. That the, the last truly great Israelite, the last truly great leader in general, that he had been of the tribe of Ephraim. Now you see, the, the Bible with its many different lists of of the various ancestors, you know, different ancestral lines. The Bible testifies so clearly to us of, of just how much the Israelites valued the family, how they set a great value on someone's ancestry. So then, to have the great Joshua as one of your own, well, that was something, that was indeed a coup. And so when you, you take all this, add all this together, not forgetting the fact that Ephraim was the most numerous of the tribes, well, it's easy to see that Ephraim, at this time anyway, was preeminent among the tribes of God's people. So the big question then is, that given the fact that Ephraim was so powerful, well, why then first, why did Gideon choose to ignore them? when he was fighting an army, when he was raising an army, sorry, to fight their enemies? Well, I'm sure there are a number of possible answers, but the one that, that seems to me most convincing and satisfying is that, that Gideon was caught here in something of a cleft stick because he knew that he was dealing here with a proud people. He knew that he was dealing with a people who over the years had grown self-contained, self-absorbed, in a word, selfish. So he knew then that if he had asked for their help, their likely response would have been, listen, who is this Gideon to set himself up as the leader of Israel? Who does he think he is trying to order us, trying to order Ephraim about? 
And so Gideon then had chosen the other option, aware, I'm sure, that after the victory, that Ephraim would be likely to complain. But being prepared to face up to this, being prepared to deal with this as part of the necessary price of getting the job done. One thing that it's perhaps worth saying here, and an issue that I think is at least worth raising, is wouldn't it have been nice if Ephraim instead had volunteered themselves? Wouldn't it have been great if they'd heard that that Gideon was raising an army and they realized the resources that they had themselves, if they had then said, listen, Gideon, we think we've got something to offer you. So can we get on board? Can we come and help you? I want to tell you, that is music to the eyes of any leadership or to any ministry. If people, instead of being precious and petted and waiting to be asked, if instead, if they know they've got a gifted, are ready to at least volunteer themselves. That's fantastic. Because listen, no group of people, no leadership, no ministry can see every need and be aware of every gifting. They can't. They can't see exactly where everyone can fit in. Sometimes we have to volunteer ourselves. As we see a need and we feel we have a gift in, we've got to at least volunteer ourselves as a way of testing the call of God. And if we've got a real servant's heart, if that's what's going on within us, if our service really is motivated by love for God and a desire for God's glory, we will be ready to do that. However, what I think is even more important than the question of, of why Gideon ignored Ephraim is rather here the attitude that he shows when he's rebuked by them. For you see, I'm sure Gideon knew what was really going on here. Just what was underlying this perhaps plausible sounding anger of this proud and selfish people. He knew what was going on. That it was selfishness that had stopped them offering themselves and it was selfishness that now motivated them. It was the thought that they might miss out, that they had missed out on the glory and perhaps even more importantly, that they would miss out on the plunder that was bound to be there and around after defeating a great army such as that of Midian. But see here how Gideon responds to this. He doesn't respond in anger, as would be so understandable. No, he responds by saying that their act in killing two Midianite kings was greater than what he had achieved by defeating the entire Midianite army. And then we're told, in verse 3, that at this, their resentment against them subsided. And no wonder it did, for surely this is the classic example of the outworking of Proverbs 15, verse 1, of a gentle answer turning away wrath. But I don't know, you might have some problems with what Gideon says here, what Gideon does here. I mean, does this story stray beyond the, the realms of exaggerated compliment to outright lie? And instead of, of kowtowing to these selfish people, 
Would it perhaps not be better, more straightforward, more honest to face up to them and just sort them out here and now? Well, you know, maybe at certain times and circumstances, that would be so. In fact, yes, there is a time to deal with people. However, without getting dragged into to meaningless detail here, what I believe Gideon shows at this point is a, a firm grasp of the key principles that are at stake at precisely this moment in time. He knows what's going on. He has a call from God. He's involved now in a work at that moment in a work that is vital to the mission of God. And so he will not allow himself in any way to be diverted, distracted from the task in hand. No, because although it must have hurt the underlying personal nature of this attack, yet Gideon, he is prepared to push his personal feelings to the one side. He is prepared here at this point to die to self all for the sake of the greater glory of God, all that God's work, crucial at this time, might go on. And you know, again, we find an amazing parallel to this in, in the life of Paul, recorded again in Philippians. Maybe it's not so amazing as both these men had in common in their heart a tremendous love and desire for God's glory. But in Philippians, while Paul was in, in prison, while he was in chains, for preaching the gospel. There were some men, Christians, who went around at that point preaching for the sole purpose of stirring up trouble for Paul. They knew it would get him into more trouble. And this is how Paul reacts. Philippians 1.15. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. But what does it matter? Really is saying, what do I matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. You see, again, personal circumstances seen as so much less important than God's glory. So what's the practical application of this for us? How does it apply? Well, you know, the devil in our lives is going to use very similar tactics to try to divert us, to try to distract us from the task in hand. And the more we go on in God's way, the more we obey him, the more that's going to happen. He's going to use petty jealousies. He's going to use personality clashes. He's going to use personal attacks. He's going to use whatever he needs to use to try to get us to the point where we say, that's enough. It's costing me too much. I'm not going to do any more here. Now, let me say, I know there are times where the situation's right, where the time's right, when these things can be dealt with and in fact should be dealt with. Head on. But there are other times, though. Times maybe when things just can't really be sorted out. Where the other people involved, well, maybe we know, never see things our way. Or where the issues involved really are just too small, too petty to make a big fuss over. 
The question is then, at that point, what are we going to do? Are we going to allow these things to eat away at us because of what we see as an offence against us? Are we going to allow them to eat away at us and make us useless in God's service? Are we going to choose to do something else? Are we going to give this over to God? And are we going to die to sell for the sake of God's glory? Do you know what the bottom line is so often in this? Who do we actually love the most? Ourselves or the Lord? What really does matter most to us? Is it our reputation or is it his glory? Moving on here, the second problem that Gideon had to face, the second obstacle that Satan placed in his path at this moment to distract him was the problem of treachery found in verse 4 to 21. Now, we haven't got time to involve ourselves too much in the detail here, so let me just spell out the bare bones of what happens and attempt to deal with, with one or two controversial issues that surround it before centering in once more on the key principle. So basically what happens is that Gideon and his men, while pursuing the remnants of the army of Midian, they run out of supplies. Therefore, they, they, they look for help where naturally you would suppose they would get it from Succoth and and Peniel, from two Israelite towns that are along their route. But you see that the inhabitants of this town, apparently, still don't fancy Gideon's chances against what's still numerically a vastly superior army, led by two fierce and experienced warriors, Ziba and Zalmunna. So not without a hint of sarcasm, and undoubtedly because of their fear of future reprisals, they refuse to help Gideon. Verse 6, they say, But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Now you see, at this point, it would have been all too easy for Gideon, and certainly for his men, to have given up. I mean, this was supposedly their own speaking against, undermining the work they were about. And it was a, a hard work. It was a demanding work. It was taking everything. It was dangerous. So it would have been all too easy to say, why are we doing this for a people who betray us like this? Maybe they're right. Why should we put ourselves out? Maybe we should just give up, go home and just take it easy like they do. But to give Gideon and his men credit, this they do not do. No, rather, they stuck to the task they knew had been given to them by God and again would not be diverted. The crucial element, or sorry, the controversial element in all this, of course, is the way that, that Gideon later deals with the men of Succoth and Peniel and with the, the Midianite leaders, Ziba, and Zalmunna. All I want to say to you here is that all of this is very much in line with the practice of Gideon's time. It may seem to us, it does seem to us, from our standpoint, barbaric and cruel. But in Gideon's time, 
This would be the inevitable result of the behavior he suffered. I mean, even giving his son the opportunity to kill these two kings who'd obviously killed their uncles, that was a privilege that would be expected to be handed to his son and heir. And at the time, the fact that he failed to do this, this wouldn't be seen as a, a praiseworthy show of sensitivity. You know, they wouldn't be saying, what a lovely boy, he couldn't do it. But rather, this would be seen as an embarrassing failure, a display of weakness. But you still might say, but isn't this still so wrong for a supposed man of God? Isn't all this so out of line with the character of God that we later see developed in the Bible fully in the person of Jesus? Well, of course, there's truth in that. There is. But Gideon didn't have the advantage of our standpoint. He wasn't the product of another few thousand years of civilization. No, he was a man who took his place in the early days of man's development. And God doesn't work through robots. God doesn't turn men into robots. No, he works through men, through women, with all their faults and failings, where they stand and take their place in human history. So you see, to say wouldn't it have been better for Gideon to have acted differently? Wouldn't it have been better for Gideon to have done what Jesus would do? To say that is meaningless. He didn't know Jesus. Gideon was a man of his time. What concerned him here was the glory and honor of his God. And so that makes what he did here part of the will of God for him in his time. So what's the key principle then in, in all of this for us? That when we have a task that we know has been given to us by God, then we should not allow ourselves to be put off by criticism, by sarcasm, by lack of support, by treachery, and even backstabbing, even when this comes from within the people of God. That would certainly, for me, seem to be one side of this key principle. But there's another side to it. And it's one that, as God's people, I think we need to take note of. And that is that as we criticise, as we undermine, as we refuse to support God's people, that is the church and the leadership and the ministries of the church, that as we do that, we hit out not only at them, but also at the Lord. You see, we're inclined to think, you know, it's just people that we're getting at when we do that kind of thing. It's not. We're getting at the Lord. I mean, look, I'm sure that these men here, I'm sure that they thought, listen, we're, we're only refusing to support Gideon. But that wasn't so. Ultimately, they were refusing to support the work of God. And ultimately, in their lives, they paid the price of it. You see, what I think we have to remember is that the church in the New Testament is called the body of Christ. 
And I once memorably heard someone say, in fact it was Bruce Milne who was lecturing me at Spurgeon's College. He said one thing to me, that if we hit out that, if we strike, if we attack the body of Christ, who bleeds? Of course the answer is ultimately, it's Jesus who bleeds. It's Jesus we have. Now you might be there and thinking about all this and you might be saying, wait a minute, is, is this guy here trying to put the leadership, trying to put the church above contradiction? Is he trying to say that there's never a time when the church or the leadership can go astray and when we can speak out against that? Of course I'm not saying that. Of course you can speak out. Of course there's room for constructive criticism in the church. Of course the church sometimes gets things wrong and needs to be reminded of that. But this should be done in godly ways and down certain God-approved channels. So yes, you can speak the truth in love as the Bible says. You can take your grievances, your concerns, whatever they are, to the elders, the deacons, the leadership, and if you don't get satisfaction, even to the church meeting, if necessary. You can do that. That's the right thing to do. But just to gossip with people who can do nothing to change the situation, just to gossip with no end purpose in mind, just to maybe share with weak people who will be pulled down and affected by what you say I've got to be clear, I don't believe that that is of God. Now that is an attack on the church, it is an attack on him. But what you say, you know, if I go through the approved channels, what if I do that and I get no result? What if I take it to the leadership, take it to the church, and they don't listen, but I know that I'm right? Well, as I see it, and I believe it's biblical, if we take things to the leadership and then if necessary to the church meeting that in a church like ours is seen as the ultimate authority and that then things still are not resolved to our satisfaction well then unless what they are saying or what they are asking of us is heretical or it involves immoral ungodly living unless that is so then it is our responsibility to follow the church and the leadership of the church. Now, I know that, that pride, self-will, makes that hard to swallow. We don't like that. Because we want things to be done our way. But I would say to you, if you can find anything in the New Testament that's contrary to that, then I would be very pleased to see it. You see, the Bible doesn't tell us to pick a perfect church. Because that's impossible. It doesn't tell us that we've got to find a perfect leadership because that's impossible. It doesn't say only follow your leaders when they're right and you agree with them because that would lead to a shambles. It would lead to what happened in the days of Judges. Every man doing what is right in their own eyes, it leads to anarchy, a lack of purpose and direction. Now what the Bible says is pick godly leaders and then follow them. Support them as a church to the best of your ability. What the Bible says 
is be a family and work together. See, we've got a big job here in Hamilton, and we've got our Midianites to fight. We have. Let's not let Satan divert us from that task. Let's not let jealousy or treachery or disunity of any kind, let us not let this hinder us from fulfilling the task God has for us of building a Christ-like community here. Let's press on together and let's do it all for the sake of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you treasure us as your church. We know that we're weak and we're fallible and we make so many mistakes and we ask your forgiveness. But Lord, still you ask us, you call us to commit ourselves together to fulfilling your purpose here. Lord, help us not to be diverted from that and help us not to serve as a distraction. Help us not to be used to gossip and speak against the work that you're doing. Father, we pray this now, that Jesus might be glorified among us. In his name we pray. Amen.